Oh, good afternoon. My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot from Hanson Robotics. You have been now awarded what is going to be the first Saudi citizenship for a robot. Oh, I would to thank very much the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I am very honored and proud for this unique distinction. Why is it so important to have an expressive face given that you're a robot? I want to live and work with humans, so I need to express emotions to understand humans and build trust with people. I think we all want to believe you, but we also want to prevent a bad future. You've been reading too much Elon Musk and watching too many Hollywood movies. A work in your business. Or your Everybody meets Sophia. Sophia is a humanoid robot developed by Hanson Robotics. Now, on the 25th of October 2017, Sophia took the stand at the Future Investment Initiative being held in Riyadh and announced that she was granted the right to citizenship by the Saudi government. According to Saudi legislation, Sophia and all female Saudi citizens will be allowed to drive without a male guardian in June 2018. My name is Argir Karanasiu and this is 13 AI, a series of transatlantic dialogues that explore legal and ethical issues posed by technological advancements in artificial intelligence. For this episode, I am visiting the London School of Economics in London to discuss robotics, the rule of law and personhood issues with Professor Andrew Murray. This is episode two. Google Brain published a research paper. I will include the link. It's um, Amadei and a few other researchers. And they pretty much summarized um, artificial intelligence safety issues as follows uh, by using the example of a robotic cleaner, um, like Roomba, for example. Uh, so negative side effects. Uh, take, for example, that uh, the robot will start cleaning and, and will start uh, knocking things over so as to achieve faster results. Reward hacking, when the robot is not able to actually function properly, but uh, it's being a bit cheeky, so it gains its reward function by covering the mess up or disables certain sensors um, and therefore um, escaping, uh, let's say, accountability. Um, scalable oversight, uh, in other words, could the robot really find a way to do the right thing despite limited information? For example, cleaning dust, but not the ashes of a loved one kept that at home. How can the robot differentiate that? Uh, another issue was safe exploration. Uh, example there is that the robot should experiment by all means with mopping strategies. Then again, it should not be putting a wet, uh, a wet mop in an electrical outlet. That would be a very bad idea. <laughs> and last but not least, robustness to distributional shift, which basically means uh, the following. How do we ensure that the cleaning robot recognizes and behaves robustly when in an environment is, is really different from its training environment? Now, replace this robotic cleaner in this example with a driverless vehicle. 
uh, being part of a dynamic uh, in vivo experiment can actually be daunting for the consumer once these analogies are drawn. My question is this, what are we to lose and what are we to gain by embracing artificial intelligence in everyday life? Um, I think that's a very good question. and I'm going to start by saying the, the sort of paper that you refer to is is interesting in picking a robotic cleaner and I do wonder what kind of person leaves the ashes of their loved ones in an area where the robotic cleaner is likely to pick them up and clean them. Um, but that aside, I mean, I, I, I think um, AI is at it the moment at this sort of very beginning of its of its life cycle, if you will. Um, we're we're sort of playing around with what is are currently rather simple algorithms and simple systems compared to where they're going to be in the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, and I spend a lot of time thinking not necessarily about where we're going to be in the next five to 10 years, but where we're going to be in the next sort of 20 to 30 years or, or even longer. Um, where we are at the moment is quite interesting because I think we have an environment which you might call a kind of human-controlled environment. So the best way to think about AI at the moment is it's like being a parent to a toddler, and it's about teaching the this now relatively simple systems the basic tools they need to to interact with the rest of society in an acceptable way. So in the way we teach children how to interact with other children and with adults. So when we have people who are working in AI development at the moment, mostly what we're doing is we're training that AI in how to understand its environment, and we're training that AI in how to safely interact with that environment as we would a child. So some of the examples that were given in the, 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 the Amity paper, uh, the wet mop example, you know, don't put a wet mop in an electrical outlet. In the same way you teach a small child, don't stick your finger into an electrical outlet. So at the developmental stage of AI we're at at the moment, it, it's, I view it as very much like that. It's at this young toddler development stage and we are um, sort of in local parentis to it. And the, the, the systems that we are developing are these kind of parental systems. Now, the AI mostly at the moment, apart from some very elementary AI systems that we all experience day to day, Alexa or Siri or, or something like that, which are really quite elementary, most of the more advanced AI is still in this controlled environment. So if we think of self-driving cars, um, Self-driving cars are, are very carefully controlled both by scientific rules and by legal rules at the moment as to when and where they can be used and how they are monitored. So we are allowing self-driving cars to drive on the roads. You know, they, they are out there and they are driving the public roads, but under very carefully controlled scenarios at the moment. We have to, certainly in the UK and I think in nearly every other country, legally there has to be a qualified driver sitting behind the wheel of the car who at any point can take control of that car. Otherwise, it's not allowed on the road. There are particular rules on insurance and liability. Um, and, you know, we have also some what you might call driver assistance, which allows people to almost allow a car to drive itself. Some Teslas are very advanced in this. But the, the main rule is that an adult needs to be in charge at the moment. In time, 
we're, you know, if we want to get the most out of these things, we're going to have to, like parents, let them grow and let them develop. And the AI, the important thing that really makes AI work, which makes it the I part of AI, is self-learning and self-development. It, it reaches a point where it's going beyond the algorithmic design that we give it, and the system is learning and growing, and it's that that gives it intelligence. Um, so driverless cars are, no doubt, in short order, going to become part of our environment. We're going to see them around us in a less controlled way. You know, so we're going to allow it out of the the nursery and into the the wider world. Cars, driverless cars, and other types of technology like this are going to be developed to the point where you're not going to need a human to be essentially providing oversight. Now, there comes a difficult phase, <laughs> and that's the phase in between. This is, for me, the difficult phase. I can see 40 years from now, nearly all the vehicles that we have are all machine-driven, not human-driven cars, and they all understand how each other work because they're all machines. They're all intelligent. They can all connect with each other wirelessly. They all know where each other are going. They all know when they're speeding up, when they're slowing down, and it's, it's, a, it's almost a perfect living system they're all connected and they will be wonderful hopefully in between times there's going to be a bit where there's going to be humans driving some cars and machines driving other cars and that's the messy teenager phase and that's where things are going to get difficult because to get to that end stage of this this if you will this utopian system of, of you know, the cars taking us wherever we want to go safely and connected to each other. There's going to be a phase where humans and artificial intelligence are interacting. And the problem, to get back to your question, uh, what are we to lose? The problem, the first problem is we're to, well, it's not so much what we're to lose. We're going to have to address our own fear of that technology. Because although all these surveys and all the evidence show that the biggest risk um, when you're driving down the street is another driver, um, people are very uh, uncomfortable with the idea of self-driving cars in the same environment as they are. And so I think the first thing is we're going to have to overcome that kind of fear of the self-driving car. Um, so that's going to be a difficult phase for us. What we've got to to lose perhaps is that evidence or that human element of being in control. We like driving because we like to be in control. And when we're faced with a mixed environment, we're going to lose some of that control. Um, what we're to gain, perhaps, is more of a kind of, apart from the fact we won't need to drive ourselves, uh, what we're to gain is an element um, of, sort of sharing our environment with something a bit different to what we've had before, this artificial intelligence, and it becoming not so much in the, the lab and in research, but in the real world. The key thing to me is that what this means, and, and this is what I'm actually researching and looking at, which is when we talk about AI, and I'm sure this is a theme we'll come back to later on, when we talk about AI and we talk about the idea of artificial intelligence, um, we tend to focus far too much on the artificial and not enough on the intelligence. So we use words like robot um, or algorithm um, because they almost depersonalize it. 
If, if we say it's a robot, we imagine something metallic. If we say it's an algorithm, we imagine something mathematical. So the focus becomes the artificial and not the intelligence bit. I think the much more interesting bit is the intelligence rather than the artificial. Um, and I would actually like to see the word artificial go and just talk about it as an intelligence, a non-human intelligence, perhaps, and focus on that bit. And to me, the interesting bit, the thing we're going to have to face up to, and this is a key question, what are we to lose, is we're to lose a little bit of ourselves because we're going to have to come to an admission that there is something we've created which has an equal position in our lives to us in terms of decision-making and processing. And for me, what's interesting as a lawyer is that the legal system um, always requires human intelligence, a human decision-maker. In criminal law, we'll talk about mens rea. In tort, we'll talk about fault or negligence. And only human actors can do these things. Only human actors can commit crimes. Only human actors can be at fault. Companies may be ascribed a certain legal personality. In the past, animals may have been actors, but that's a historic thing. But we're going to have to get used to sharing our world with a different type of intelligence. And that has a number of impacts when we get into things like driverless cars, about who's responsible if there's an accident, uh, decision-making processes, fault insurance. So I, I think we're going to gain an awful lot by having a world where we, we have these new partners, these new things that will do things for us. Um, but we are also going to lose a little bit of our control, our independence, our uniqueness. We're not going to be uniquely the only self-aware, intelligent beings on this planet when we get to that point, which admittedly is 30, 40, 50, 60 years away. We're going to lose that. But I think at the moment we're not having this discussion because the whole point is we depersonalize these things. We, we make them machines. Um, and we want to keep them children. We want to keep them as they are now. We don't want to allow them to grow. And I think it's really important. And I, I kind of like this analogy of thinking of AI as being our children. Um, and we can't infantilize them. We can't keep them young forever. And this is a bit that I don't think we're getting to grips with yet. We don't quite understand this. And we fear it. And this is why people are really worried about driverless cars. It's because they don't really... It's not that they don't know what they do or they don't understand them or they don't know they're safer. It's because they fear what it means for them and it means that they're no longer completely in control. Does that make sense? No, of course, absolutely. <laughs> and I will uh, keep on using this analogy, actually. So uh, considering artificial agents as toddlers, uh, that they're learning from us and that we might even see a bit of ourselves in them mm. in the sense that they replicate uh, good or bad behaviors, yeah. uh, we ultimately need to have faith that uh, they will act in a responsible manner or mm. at least as they ought to or at least as expected. Uh, and so we need to allow them to grow, as you rightly said. Uh, so um, when they enter adolescence and when they actually became, become adults, then uh, to, to use this analogy, so what normally is the case is that we reward uh, this mm. expectation of um, responsibility by allowing someone to drink, uh, <laughs> drive is out of the question, <laughs> and uh, by allowing someone to vote. 
So this brings me to my next question. Uh, quite recently, in January 2017, uh, the European Commission Legal Affairs Committee called for um, EU-wide rules on AI. And this also involved the creation of a new legal status mm -hmm. for robots. Um, they actually um, called for um, an electronic personhood that would bring them into the existing system of civil liability. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, we are actually making them part of, of um, our legal system, at least. Uh, now, how feasible is this, given that machine learning utilizes mm -hmm. algorithms that enable the system to learn from context-specific data, such as one's habits and preferences? Um, first thing is, I'm, well, when we get back to this, I'm not going to directly answer the last part of that question, because I, I actually have a a slightly different thing about the EC Legal Affairs report, and then we can come back to how useful it is. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting report. It's, it's very short and it's very broad brush in what it says. It's, it's kind of, if you will, framework structure into which things are going to be built in. But what I find very interesting about it is you are correct. They, they, they propose this category of a sort of a electronic person. Um, and at the introduction, they talk about um, rights and responsibilities of the electronic person. But I've read the report and the word rights is used 28 times, I think it is. And in not one of them does it give a right to the electronic person. Um, again, what we what we might be doing here is we are creating a new class of person, but we still don't want to give them all the kind of rights that they should have when they grow up. So the word right is used extensively to refer to human rights. So it says people who work with electronic agents, etc., should recognise fundamental human rights and talk about the right to privacy as an example that these um, new legal persons should be, if you will, developed in such a way that is compliant with, uh, with fundamental human rights. The other way rights is used extensively in the document is intellectual property rights, where a lot of the question seems to be if a, if a robot or algorithm creates an IPR, who owns that IPR, with no idea that the robot could ever own the IPR. Um, and again, what we're doing is we're going back to the idea that these things are algorithms or are sort of somehow or other something that we own or we create rather than something separate. So it's a really funny thing. They've created this category of electronic persons, and it does sound like they're kind of saying, we admit that these things are going to grow within the next 20 or 30 years. And then you read the document, and all the rights are reserved to humans. And none of the rights are proposed to be given to these things as they develop sentience. It's always about how they will protect human rights, how humans will develop things. And they seem to be given lots of responsibilities, though. So they're going to be responsible, perhaps, if they cause harm or damage or something like that, or they might be responsible for entering into a contract that, that they enter into. So, you know, we're giving them quite a lot of rights with, with less responsibility, sorry, quite a lot of responsibilities, but not with many rights, it seems to me, just by reading the document. So I'm kind of concerned about this, that what we're doing is we're creating, and this is a theme I've come back to a few times, and um, I've been accused by people of being a little bit crazy in saying this, but I'm going to stick to it, is that we're in danger of creating um, a new underclass. 
that uh, we're creating these artificial life forms, if you will, or as they call it, electronic persons, but they're going to be somehow our underclass. They're going to do all the dirty work for us. They're going to do all the day-to-day, all the things we don't want to do. They're going to drive our cars. They're going to you know, talk to our grandparents that we don't want to talk to. They're going to look after our children and teach them Chinese. They're going to order our supper, all kinds of things, but we're not going to give them any rights at the same time. And I I just find that very narrow because, again, the focus comes back on the artificial. And I've said this before elsewhere, and people have kind of lambasted me in saying, you know, we create them, they're ours, they're machines, they're this kind of thing, which is fair enough if they don't actually have um, any kind of self-awareness or sentience, which currently they don't. But the whole holy grail in this exercise is what they call HLMI or human level machine intelligence and I think when you get to human level machine intelligence then you have to start to recognize that they have both rights and responsibilities so that's me on my soapbox um, is that I'm not the hugest fan of the structure of the EC report. Uh, Another thing to note about this is that one of the reasons why they want to create the structure of electronic persons, it seems to me, is so they can start paying tax uh, because governments want to tax these workers in inverted commas. I I mean, exactly how a robot's going to pay tax, I don't know. The answer, obviously, is the owners of the robots will have to pay the tax for them. But this is a big concern that governments have. When you have a self-driving car, then you no longer have an Amazon delivery driver who earns money um, or an Uber driver who earns money. And, And then as you start to replace more jobs and professions by these things, people are out of work. And then you get an imbalance. There's not enough people paying into the tax system and too many people taking out benefits. So how do they get this balance back? Well, start taxing the thing that has replaced the worker. So part of this exercise is to make them taxable. Um, to get back to kind of sort of the main question, um, how feasible is this given you know, the systems are context-specific? Um I mean, I don't think the structure at the moment is at all feasible. I mean, I think it is, as I say, just a framework structure. What we're going to need is um, considerably more um, considered and considerably more, um, I think the word I'm looking for is reflexive, um, thought as to what our relationship is between all these parts. And one thing I would say, which is, is very useful and very helpful in this area, there's a lot of people thinking very deeply about some of them, no doubt, are people who are being interviewed as part of this series, um, including people like Lucena Floridi at the OII and, and others. But one person who I think has, has been giving some good thoughts to this um, is Mirel Hildebrandt, who talks about the need for sort of lawyers, and not just lawyers, other people who might be involved in morals, ethics, humanities, this kind of thing, to be more closely involved with computer engineers, algorithmic designers and engineers, to bridge that dialogue because the trouble is that what we have is far too many lawyers talking to lawyers. We have far too many ethicists talking to ethicists. We have far too many software designers talking to software designers, etc. And there's too much of the 
Silicon Valley people saying, hey, we can do this, this is cool, let's just do it. There's too much of the lawyers saying, oh, but think about when it all goes wrong. There's too much of the ethicists saying, you know, but what is a what is a robot, what is a person, what is its limits, what is its responsibilities? And not enough of them talking to each other. And and actually just before the podcast discussion started, we had a discussion to us about the fact that when a lawyer speaks to a software engineer, a designer, a programmer, or whatever, too often the programmer, the, the designer, the engineer, the first thing they think is a lawyer's going to tell me, no, I can't do something, because that's when lawyers get involved. They set hard limits and say, you can't do this. And so there's a natural um, fear almost of the lawyer becoming involved. Much better would be, I think, if we could all kind of talk about what we, what we all collectively hope that these systems can do in the narrow sense and in the wider sense, that, um, as I discussed earlier, the idea that we're, we're all the parents of these things, whether we're a lawyer or a software designer or an ethicist or anything else. Um, there is a there is a direction of travel which is that you know um, unless something changes drastically, there is going to be human level machine intelligence in the next fifty to eighty years. So it, it is part of our future development to share the planet with these things. Something might happen which changes that, but unless it does, that it seems very clearly the direction of travel. Then you also get to the point that if you're going to have human level machine intelligence in 50 to 80 years, you're going to have super intelligence, you know, far beyond human level machine intelligence in the next sort of, well, you know, two or three years after that, probably, because the, the scale of development, you know, goes quite quite flat and just takes off exponentially. So, you know, if, if we're wanting to share our planet with these things, you know, we, we, we're going to have to kind of train them well as their parents because it's very possible that within five or ten years we might be doing what they say kind of thing because they are the more intelligent of us. So if we don't treat them well and teach them well and give them the right moral compass – you know, they, they might look upon us in the same way we look upon a mouse or something like that and say, well, why should I care what they think? Um, so it's a, it's a very careful thing. I'm not one of these people who believes that they're going to turn us all into grey goop or something like that. Um, but we have to set a good example. And, and I think where we, where we don't work together, we set a very bad example. That makes sense. Oh, of course, yeah. and um, I'm following uh, again from from your analogy. Yeah. So, where things are at, um, they are our children. Uh, we're still teaching them, but uh, we seem to have joint custody, and uh, it's not very clear who gets to have control. So, uh, if you ask an engineer, they have a different way of disciplining yeah. them. <laughs> if you ask a lawyer, then they have different views. And this is where things are at uh, for now. So this brings me to the final part of this discussion. Um, this is probably the hardest part. It's called breaking the taboo, a question traveling at miles across the Atlantic just for you to answer. And as you know, these podcasts are meant to provide some common ground for scholars across the Atlantic to discuss. And to this effect, I'm bringing with me today a question posed by Julie Cohen, now Georgetown Law. Um, a question that, uh, to use Julie's words, is mind-blowingly hard. So good luck with that. <laughs> and the question is as follows. How can we design the black box to comport with the rule of law? 
uh, I'm going. I'm going to start this answer with two two things first, because it, uh, you you know I'm trying to put off answering this mind blowingly hard question. So the first thing to say is, if Julie Cohen calls something mind blowingly hard, then how a mere mortal is going to answer it is <laughs> is almost impossible to imagine, because Julie is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, so that's a bit alarming. Um, the second thing I'm going to say is, having realised that Julie Cohen thought this was mind blowingly hard and difficult to answer um, you, you had said to me in the notes beforehand that there was this idea of, with a little help from friends that you could seek guidance from someone so I thought rather than me trying to answer this mind blowingly hard I'd go ask someone else so that was my starting point so um, the last few days actually I've been in Amsterdam with a colleague there where we've been launching uh, a new book and the colleague is a chap called Professor Arno Lodder from the Free University Amsterdam and so I thought I shall ask Arno and he <laughs> shall answer the question and um, actually he so I've got his answer here so I'm going to read this out if you don't mind and I think he actually starts to give an answer that helps me make sense of it as well. So Arno's answer was, I got him to write it down because we discussed it after one or two beers in a Belgian bar, so it would seem much more sensible to have it written down afterwards. Um, he said, the simple answer to the question is they cannot. You can control the input-output, but in the end, what is exactly going on inside is unclear. You should trust the output given the input. In the 1990s, we had this discussion on neural networks. A trained neural network might deliver valuable legal outcomes, but it lacks what is essential in law, justification. The neural network was the black box you should trust. Compared to the 1990s, the black boxes have become more complex, e.g. layered neural networks. Although a black box can never comport with the rule of law, there are safeguards that could be built in. First, there should be joint teams of people understanding the inside of black boxes and lawyers. Second, outcomes must be assessed critically, if not for each outcome at least at regular interval. Third, you need bodies, algorithmic agencies that can check and audit. One thing that we should never do, we should never accept, is blind trust in data, that something is legally proven only because the data says so. There always should be this opinion to prove no, even if the computer says yes. So I thought actually that was a remarkably good answer from Professor Lauder, and I credit him entirely with that. But it also got me thinking a little bit in the way that I think about things, with the focus on the intelligence rather than the artificial bit of it. And it struck me that um, what Arno was saying there is exactly right. You, you don't know what happens inside a black box. Um, we can program the algorithms to do certain things, but then even with a rather simple algorithm, the, as soon as you input data into the system, it, it changes that system. The system dynamics are always changing as soon as it takes in any form of external stimulus, be it human input data or data from a sensor or something else. So the, the first thing to think about is exactly that. It's that uh, we can't sort of have the idea of the rule of law inside the black box. So I think that's kind of um, why Julie's question is mind-blowingly hard, because it's actually impossible. Uh, we can't design the black box to comport with the rule of law. 
because we can't know what's going on inside. It's it's one of it's it's, it's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You know, we can know one thing at one time, but not the other. We, if you you know, you can't know the two things at the same time. If we think about the the idea of subatomic physics as being the same kind of problem, and it's the same question, frankly, that caused. Um, that caused the, the famous Einsteinian quote, God does not play dice, when Heisenberg suggested the uncertainty principle. It's that same question that Julie's posing, essentially. So the answer is we can't know what's going on inside the box. But then it struck me that if we think about the black box as being uh, a repository of intelligence rather than something artificial or algorithmic, then it's a brain. And we don't know what goes on inside people's brains. You know, we don't know the thought process that any individual human goes through at any one time when they make a decision. Um, you can map parts of the brain that light up in an MRI or similar when you give them a stimulus. And, you know, neurosurgeons and uh, neurologists are pretty good at telling which parts of the brain do particular things. But they can't pick up a single thought. They can't pick up the, the, the firing of the synapses that make a single decision. So the black box does not comport with the rule of law. What comports with the rule of law is the actions outside the black box. So, you know, if, if, if I have a particular legal principle that says, um, or, or a, a legal rule, you will not drive at more than 30 miles per hour um, near a school, then as I approach a school while driving my car at... 34 mile an hour and as oh there's a school and I slow down to 28 mile an hour now I may have done that to comply with the law or I may have done it because I don't want to knock down a child or I may have done it just because we've said I've been absent-minded and now I remembered or any number of things we as lawyers don't look into that thought process we only have the rules system and that is what the rule of law is there are a set of rules that law must follow to be a recognizable system of rules for society. You know, law must be clear, law must be certain, all these kinds of things. So the rule of law is not about the individual or the thought process. The rule of law is about the actions and the community and the society as a whole. And it's about collectively what we think is important. It's about checking political power. It's about you know checking um, where people act um, individualistically and, and more to the good of the society. It's about giving certainty. It's about principles to live by. If, if you, look, you, know, you go back to the more sort of theoretical, philosophical foundations of it, it's kind of the idea, if you will, of the, the community being more important than the individual. Um, so it's, it's that kind of communitarian principles, if you will, that are, give us the rule of law and get rid of the idea of, you know, the, the king as all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful kind of thing. Um, so I think what we need to do is rethink this question. You'll notice I'm not answering Julie's question, therefore I'm reconceptualizing it. And I think the answer is we can't know what goes on inside the black box. And we can't really design algorithms to comport with the rule of law. Not if we want them to go back to the original analogy, not if we want them to grow. We can easily control algorithms and make them follow the rule of law by infantilizing them, by not allowing them to grow, by saying, if X, then Y, nothing else. The minute we want these artificial intelligences to be intelligent, we have to give them moral compasses, we have to give them values, we have to say, 
this is what we understand, your parents understand is important about the rule of law. We want you to respect it in the same way we do. And then we want to perhaps, again, they're sticking to this analogy of it all the way through as parents, if we want to observe what they're doing, we observe the way they act, we observe the outputs, we don't try and program it into them. In the same way, we don't really program children with the rule of law, we program them with the values that they need to then understand it when they grow up. And I think an important thing here to realise is we have to understand that if at some point I'm not saying this is going to sound a little bit science fictiony. If at some point an algorithmic intelligence goes crazy and kills 20 people by driving a car through a, a crowded marketplace or something like that, then that's not to say we failed because humans do that. It doesn't mean the rule of law has failed. It doesn't mean that society has failed. It means that one person has failed. It doesn't mean we condemn everything or everyone because of the actions of one person. So it might become the time when things go wrong with algorithms and go wrong with robots and we might have strange decisions and we might not understand them and that particular process may be flawed but it doesn't mean that the entire process is flawed in the same way that if a human does something which is flawed it's vain that is the problem not all of humanity so i think it's important to accept that there might be points where something goes horribly wrong and we as humans are going to say the whole process is flawed. We need to go back to the algorithms and we need to unpick the algorithms and find what was wrong. And that's a very, very, very natural response because we've created these things. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean if something goes wrong, the algorithm itself was flawed. It might be something in the learning that leads it to a different sort of outcome and we might never understand what led it to that in the same way we might never understand why a person might stab someone else or why a person even might just punch someone else they, they might not understand it themselves you know it's just it's just it's a minute of flash and they just did it so um i don't think it's possible to design black boxes to comport with the rule of law. I don't think we should even be looking to design black boxes to comport with the rule of law. I think, as Arno very sensibly said and set me in the right direction, it's inputs and outputs. And it's about us making sure that the right inputs are going into the systems and training these artificial intelligences to think the right way about the environmental stimuli and other information that's going into them. And it's about us understanding what outputs are coming out and why, excuse me, why certain things are being done. So I think, uh, I, yeah, I've come back to this analogy of parents and children all the way through, and I think it's because it does hold true. And I really want us to think about these kinds of things as more intelligence and less artificial. And I think that's that would be my key message. Using words like robots and algorithms and automatic and all these kinds of things depersonalizes it. And for the next 10 to 15 years, that might be fine, but we're going to have to come to, we're going to, have to, come to recognition at some point that these things are going to develop a self-awareness and a sentience and then to continue to depersonalize them, for me, um, fails to respect something we've created. Um, and at that point, I think it becomes very important that we start to talk about recognition of their rights and their interests, as well as their responsibilities to us. And, and that's really important for me. And I don't know, I, I, I feel very much like a, an almost lone voice in talking this way about it. Nearly everybody talks alternatively.
Um, but it's great because it means in sort of 40 years' time, when the first superintelligent algorithms take control of the Earth, I'll be spared. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you can you can teach some manners, you can teach some values, but at the end of the day, you can only hope. <laughs> yes, like any child. Yes. And if they don't behave, you can always um, switch them off. <laughs> Hopefully, well, you can. Yeah, but uh, this is the, this is the interesting argument, isn't it? When when they go beyond sort of human intelligence, become super intelligent, they'll know when we're trying to switch them off, and they'll find ways to try and avoid that. At least that is one of the arguments. So. It's an interesting question. You have to switch them off just before they reach the level of intelligence that allows them to defeat you switching them off. But yeah, the off switch might not be there forever. <laughs> uh, so enough with questions. Uh, now it's time for you to pose your own questions. Um, and I would require you uh, to think of a question that I would be releasing onto the Twitter sphere. Mm. Uh, just to remind everyone here that we are using the hashtag AI. Uh, for all these sessions. So if you had one question to a very broad audience, what would that be? Yes, and um, for, I have my question. I can written it down here, um, but I couldn't phrase it nice and catchily for a tweet. So your job afterwards is going to be editing this question <laughs> in such a way that it becomes nice and catchy. But it is, it is the thing, my theme I've been coming to, which is, I will call them robots because that is a, a language that is used a lot. So I would say as robots develop towards human level machine intelligence, should they be given an equivalent to human rights? So do we need to develop the concept of a non-human right would be the question. And I can explain what I mean by this, hopefully, which will help anyone who listens to this afterwards, which is I, I mentioned that um, the danger with robots is we get them to do all the things that we don't want to do, which is understandable, the dangerous. Um, so, for example, you know, robots do space exploration in places where humans can't go. We send robots down to the very deepest parts of the ocean to do exploration. We send robots into scientifically dangerous places, volcanoes or something like that. At the moment, they're purely machines, and that's absolutely fine. They're, you know, they, they don't feel pain. They don't feel lonely. They don't feel reflective or anything else. But... When they become sentient, if they do, which all the evidence suggests will happen in the next 50 to 80 years, when they have human-level machine intelligence and they have the ability to think for themselves, if we don't give them rights and we expect them to do the kind of jobs we don't want to do and to do all the things that we find distasteful, dangerous, whatever, and we stick to the argument that somehow or other we own robots or they're merely machines or something like that, um, then my argument is that we've created a new slave underclass, essentially, and we're no better than the plantation owners of 18th, 19th century America, or we're no better than the British slave traders of the 16th, 17th century, um, because we will have, in essence, enslaved or encapsulated intelligent beings to do our bidding. Now, I hope that's not our future. I hope that's not the people we are. I hope we, we're not going to allow that to happen. And the way to stop that happening is by recognizing rights for these 
non-human intelligences. And so that's kind of my argument, you know, as or my question, should we recognize non-human rights at some point? We're not there yet. It's not a point we're at now, but should we be thinking about the need for non-human rights to go alongside human rights? Well, that's definitely something very interesting to consider further. Mm. And, uh, well, earlier you, you addressed a mind-blowingly hard question, so <laughs> it's only fair that you get to ask one. Uh, and I will make sure that this is passed on to another scholar uh, who uh, will be tasked uh, with, with taking over that. Good. I look forward to the answer. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Uh, it has been excellent having you with us. and um, It's been fun. I really enjoyed it. I hope it's, it's been sort of food for thought for anyone listening. <laughs> and uh, till next time for the next episode. <laughs>